Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation Rory had with actor Liam Cunningham, who came up to the Tortoise Shack to have a chat about housing, his career, what politicised him, maybe what radicalised him, uh, and uh, he even even stole a bit of grub out of the kitchen. Nonetheless, uh, we won't bear a grudge, Liam. Uh, if you're listening, if you like, if you enjoy what we do, please help us keep the mics on and the conversations going. How you do that is you click the link in the podcast you're listening to right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise You have a look at the levels and see if there's something in there that you're satisfied and happy enough to give us on a monthly basis that keeps us going. Even try it for a month. Just try it for 30 days. You get access to all our back catalogue all in one place and you don't have to listen to these. Please plea free and podcast put out as quickly as I can turn them around there's a lot of extra content out there at the moment and, and while it's a lot of work it is very rewarding but unfortunately that has to have a financial value we just can't sustain ourselves and likes and retweets folks uh, one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise I won't delay any further enjoy what has been called a fiery conversation with Liam Cunningham talk to you soon <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a guest who is very unusual for guests I've had on this podcast so far. We've had pretty high-profile people, but I think he most definitely qualifies as the most high-profile person, the most famous person ever to be on this podcast. And it is um, someone who you might know as Davos Seaworth. Um, Mr. Seaworth, thanks for joining me today on Reboot Republic. You're bigging me up too much, Rory, there now. <laughs> I'm only a f- f- fellow that lives at the other end of the street down here. Well, it's a long street. Yeah, how are you? It's Liam Cunningham, yeah. It is Liam Cunningham, and I'm absolutely delighted, privileged to have you here. Um, a man who's uh, entertained many, many of us for many, many years, and engaged and not just entertained. Um, And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we are going to touch on housing in particular and this housing disaster. And that's kind of how myself and Liam connected on social media around this. And I know Liam has very strong feelings about this. And when I was in touch and um, I was struck by that. And it's always something where I try and reach out to people who I see care about the state of this country and care in a meaningful way um, and about the disaster that is going on. And I wanted to hear, you know, your perspective. And you've a long, you know, you've a, a long story yourself. Um, do you want to start by telling us where you grew up and what was it like growing up for you in school and whatever? Well, my, uh, I like to boast about this. You know, they say the working class have a chip on their shoulder. I have a chip on both shoulders, so I'm well balanced. <laughs> Very good. Uh, not my, um, uh, I boast that my working class credentials are impeccable. That. My, my dad was a, a docker uh, uh, on the Dublin docks. Um, I grew up, I went to St. Lawrence Hotels on several place where all the all the, all the the children from Sheriff Street Flats went. I, I was in school with all the Sheriff Street boys and my mom was from Sheriff Street Flats. Yeah. Uh, my dad was just over around Johnny Cullen's Hill there in, in, uh, in, the, in the North Wall. And uh, so I spent the first seven years of my life down... Uh, just off Abercorn Road, uh, where Sean O'Casey used yeah, to live a yeah. uh, hundred odd years ago. Uh, and then I reached the dizzy heights of Coolock when I was about nine years old. Eight, yeah, about eight or nine years the old. Salubrious suburbs. Oh, at the time, yeah. God bless McInerney Homes. 
Um, we could do it a bit with that. And they were government built. Yeah. And we had an ever expanding. Were they council, council, yeah. council? Yeah, they're Corbo. Yeah. yeah, Corbo houses. That my mum is still in, where I grew up, with no dry walls or anything like that. It was all properly built stuff. And uh, when they were moving people out from the inner city uh, and out from the tenements and all that sort of stuff. And, the, you know, the Tala came after us in Clondalkin and mm. all that area. Uh, but we were kind of the, I suppose, the first wave. We were out in the countryside and there was wheat fields out the back of... Um, where I where I lived when I went out was my first experience of a field. I didn't even know what the crop was. <laughs> it was just somewhere to lie down and play hide and seek. Hide, you know, yeah. hide and go seek when you were younger. Um, and then um, when I got to secondary, I went to St David's in Artane. Yeah, just up the road. Yeah, yeah, and that was that had a, that had been uh, a leather frack kind of That's operation. Right. Yeah, uh, only a few years uh, before I got there when I was whatever eleven years old. Um and um and and I did meet you know me leaving certain all that sort of stuff and then joined the ESB. I was an electrician there for more or less eleven years. Um and, uh, did, and how was school for you? Did you enjoy school? I did. I, you know I didn't mind it. I was I, I was kind. I was little. So uh, I, I I can't I, imagine you've been little. I know. I no. I was a really late developer. And, <laughs> Particularly and, anyone who's seen your uh, gym gym expertise <laughs> yeah. would certainly not be calling you little. Well, I I don't know about that, but. Um, but they'd skip me a year when I was younger, which is, I don't think, ever a good thing to do for a kid. Yeah. Uh, and and as well as that being a late developer. So I was the object of, of uh, bullies and, and uh. all like that, just because of the size of me. So I had to go down the uh, the class clown route right. to try and save myself. And if you make the bullies laugh, they will usually leave you alone. Yeah. Um, which probably helped me. <laughs> later on when I decided yeah. to become an actor isn't that fascinating where it comes from yeah it's yeah I, I suppose it is well it comes from different places and all sorts of people like a lot of teachers are actors because they're acting every every day when they go in and every class that they come yeah. in they have yeah. to be um, they don't bring their, their their worries into the classroom Um and they have to keep the attention of a, of, of an audience, which yeah. is their students, you know. So performance, there's a huge performing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think and Brendan and, and Brendan Gleeson was a teacher in that. And there's, lo- there's loads of teachers yeah. uh, in our game. Uh, but anyway, you were in school and they, they were bullying, but you came up with all the wisecracks and... Yeah, yeah well, well, I couldn't fight. I was too small <laughs> to fight. So if you can't take them on, you've got to make them laugh. Yeah. So I realised that early enough. So and, and so I did a bit of that. Um, and then you went into the ESB. Went into the ESB. As an electrician. Yeah, I'd never been anywhere. I was married. Uh, I'm 22 years old and married before I was ever on a plane. I was actually married before I was on a plane. Can you believe that? And my first time on a plane was going to live in Africa for three and a half years. So I was working in the bush in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Um, and why Africa? What? Uh, they came over looking for people. They, they, uh, it was it was four years after independence, okay. uh, and uh, of course the whites had kept all the good jobs for themselves yeah. uh, with the with the racist uh, Rhodesian government. So um, there was a quarter of a million whites in Zimbabwe at independence, and four years later, when we arrived, there was only fifty thousand left. So whatever, eighty percent or you know seventy five percent of the population. Uh, had left when a mm, when a, mm. a, a black government or an African government yeah. uh, um, um, uh, uh, took over from the the white um, racist um, Rhodesian government, uh, and of course they had all the jobs, so they had no skilled people. Mm. So they actually came over. I've been asked several times 
to put this down as a treatment and, and uh, to get a, a, a series out of it. Something the BBC asked me to do, but I'm desperately lazy. Uh, and they came over and about 30 youngflas in their early 20s went over to keep the network, electrical network going all over Zimbabwe. Mo- most of us working in the bush. Yeah. Uh, and we were all kind of aged between 21 and 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mo- and most of them in their early 20s. Uh, and, and most of us from, obviously from working class areas because yeah. of the electrical thing, the electrician thing. And we went over there to, to tr- stop the lights going out in Zimbabwe. Um, and uh, when I came, I said three and a half years, I did, did that, came back, went back to me little yellow van driving around Drimna and Walkinstown. And after about a month, uh, of being back, it felt like I was never away at all because that's what I was doing before I left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when I was over there, one of the areas I looked after was the National Park, Wangay National Park, and, and, that, and that was like 16,000 elephants and all that sort of stuff. When you're, so when you're driving around Drimna, it doesn't have the same glamour anymore. <laughs> Plenty of elephants, different sorts. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I was looking not for a distraction. Not just Drimna, across everywhere. Not yeah. just in Drimna. God, Drimna's of course. a great place. Great I place. lived in Drimna myself for a year. It's great. It's a great yeah. spot. I was in a different cafe every day. It was the most wonderful anthropological study for any human being. Um, and uh, well, so when I was back, I was I. And little did they know, little, when they were giving you the cup of tea to the Sparky, <laughs> yeah. where he was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sure there's a few people confused out there. I remember that fella changing my meter. It can't be the same bloke. Can't be the same bloke. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I was looking for a hobby when I came back. I was bored with the job. Um, started a, a, an acting school after seeing an ad in the back of the paper, and. Uh, and then the unexpected happened. I started falling in love with it, and it, uh, I couldn't. Uh, I had a voracious appetite for it, uh, which I still do to, to find out how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and what, what, like, what brought you to when you saw that ad uh, to go? I'm going to go for this. Well, I'd love movies, and and uh, I know it's, uh, naivety is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, and I was always. I remember looking at them and being so dramatically bowled over by stories and. How does a piece of celluloid or a TV screen make you sit in your sofa and, and weep and be yeah. concerned for people you've never met? Yeah, and all yeah. that. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. You'd watch them first time for the enjoyment. And I was always going back. And, you know, it still is. My favorite film is Apocalypse Now. And I've seen it about 25 or 30 times. Yeah, yeah. And, but after the 10th time, you start going, hold on a minute. How, how did I do that? What's, somebody sat down and decided to come up with a story, wrote a script. Got a hold of whoever produced it or whatever. Gone to people with money. Gone to the studios, and somebody decided to hand over a hundred million on the strength of somebody sitting at a typewriter. And they went off into the jungles of the Philippines and yeah, yeah. and came it back with an a work of art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see why that movie would inspire. It's one of the few movies that I uh, have watched multiple times yeah. as well and sat, and it's incredible. It's but anyway, a, yeah. so you, so that just that fascination. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Fascination just brought you to it, and you. Decided, and it was a brave move as well, wasn't it? No, not really, no. No. In fact, in, what in did fa- the missus say to you? You know what? It's one of the reasons I'm, after 38 years of marriage, I'm still with her. <laughs> um, she said, do what makes you happy. Fair play to her. Uh, which is, which is tricky, you know, because um, you're, you're going from having the, uh, in inverted commas, the grand secure job in the semi state body, where the only yeah. reason you get sacked is if you shoot someone. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and I just, I had a fire in my belly for it and I had to go for it. It wasn't that bright because I had to try it. 
So uh, once I had the box of tools, yeah, and I was, I kind of said to myself, yeah. "I'll give it five years or so, see what I see how I get on, and if if it blows up my face, I can go back to the building sites or whatever I can feed the family." But uh, but it worked out. It certainly did. It, it took a while. I'm yeah. thirty odd years doing it now, so yeah. you know, thirty odd. As years. they say that, yeah, thirty thirty odd years yeah, in an overnight success. Over, yeah, to be an overnight <laughs> success. Yeah. No, no, it's it's incredible, and I was just talking to you before we came on. Yeah. Um, about one of my favorite movies of all time is The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Yeah, um, me too. And it, um, you probably you love yourself in it. You do. I love the bloke. <laughs> I, I, I love Dan the tra- train no, driver. Dan he was great. great. Like some of the scenes in that where you you know you come in and the you know just the feeling of you you feel you know the rebellion off you. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was based on I I what Ken did give me a book about um. Frongo Camp in in uh, in Wales, which right. is where they did the internment. Okay. It just shows you how the how, how, how the British lear- never learned from their own mistakes, because when internment started and they started locking people up yeah. up the north, yeah, they created exactly the same scenario that they did uh, during the revolution, yeah, uh, pre Civil War, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they took all these. Um, uh, ne'er do wells and agitators and stuck them in a camp in, in Frongok in Wales, where they just sat around and and and, uh, and increased their political convictions yeah, and uh, yeah. and it was basically a university for revolutionaries. Yeah, and yeah, they had yeah. provided all the meals and the beds yeah. and everything else, which is what they did, and they did it up the north as well. And, uh, and just you know, because what you were, it was interesting, you said uh, Ken Loach, who was the director and, and uh, mm. of that of the wind that shakes the barley. Um, you said he inter- oh, interrogated. No, you didn't say interrogated. You said he he when you went for that. Yeah, that he roasted you in terms of for hours or interviewed you. For oh hours. yeah, well no, he does it. He does it with he does he does it with everybody. He sets up improvisation stuff because uh, he's he's he he calls himself an old trot. Yeah, an old Trotskyite, but but um, yeah, he's 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 essentially an anarchist, right? Uh, although he looks like a regional bank manager. <laughs> Uh, or a vicar, he, he or a the most inoffensive, yeah, the most <laughs> inoffensive human being, and he's an, an absolute delight. Yeah, and his producer, let's not forget his producer Rebecca O'Brien, she's yeah. a, an absolute legend, and and Paul Laverty, who's was a human rights lawyer who wrote it. Yeah, and uh, and he's an extraordinary fella. Um, so when you're in with him, uh, oh, let me preface this by saying I got the script for When the Chase the Barley about a month after we finished the movie. <laughs> I know it just sounds so. That's counter- incredible. It's a month counterintuitive. After you finished it. Yeah, you didn't get any scripts. Even yeah. with the agents going on, that's why Ken works. He won't tell you what your character does, who he is. He like the, the only um, indication I was uh, was that I last more or less the run of the movie. So you know, we'd have to send somebody if he's only taking them on for a week or two yeah. weeks or whatever it may be. So I was told I was going to be in for the run of the movie. Uh, but everybody wants to work with him because when you're in with him, uh, uh, you're you're sweating. It's some of the best acting I've ever done. Has yeah. been in a room with no camera with with Ken, um, where he just gives you scenarios and then he's bringing bring complete strangers out of another door and just and just sit them down at the table. Which you don't know what they've been told. They don't know what you've been told. So does he tell you right? This is what's happening in the scene. Go act it. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think in one of them. Uh, one of the scenarios, he he sat me down and said, "Look, you, you're an um, ex addict going back to your 
your council estate in, yeah. in Britain and uh, you've been put in charge of allocating money for an arts thing uh, and the fella who put it on uh, wanted to put on a play about life in these flats but uh, but the play that he has put on is very abusive uh, of the local government and the mayor and all that and they're coming to the premier yeah. to see this thing that's going to horse them over and I have to tell him I'm shutting down the play because if I put the play on I lose funding for all of the community centres yeah. because they're blah 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 so, so he gives you this weird thing in the middle where what you're trying to do is not exactly, you know, not not to be the bad guy. You've good reasons to to be the bad guy. Yeah. yeah but obviously, yeah. the fellow you're up against in the improvisation would be a would be a guy that is convinced you're you're a traitor because you've t- t- so it's it's very grey all that. Yeah, so yeah. you can imagine the rows that happen from that. We had to be pulled apart. Some a couple of actors, one of them specifically, we were across the table at each other. We're going to box the head. <laughs> well, you get really you get, because yeah. there's no script. You're not learning lines. There's no dance. And, and how much, where did the politics come from? So obviously you were connecting with that politics and the politics, yeah. you know, in a broad left sense or, you know, social Well, my dad, was a, my dad was a docker and I saw what the, what the, 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 uh, the management down the docks where, the, where they, they um, danced on my father's dignity when, when they were getting rid of the docks and bringing in the roll on, roll off the trucks and all that sort of thing. And they were trying to sack, um, yeah, they were trying to sack, get rid of the dock workers. Yeah. Um, and I remember my dad going, disappearing early in the morning and coming back an hour and a half later saying there was no work today. And you had to go in and see if you got, see if you got work for that day. And because they were trying to uh, keep employment for as many dockers as they could, but it wasn't enough work to go around. And they were, they were just treated really badly. And I remember looking at my dad going, that, no fucking way that's happening to me. Yeah. So I've kind of, um, and I got a bit, uh, disillusioned as well in the ESB when they, when they were the management were trying to crap on us and and uh, I was a lot more militant than the union was willing to they were they were incredibly scared of the management and I thought we should all walk out we should just fucking take our vans take the keys out throw yeah. the keys in the river and walk away yeah yeah uh, and they were they, they were it was like talking to management I remember at the time and just kind of going. I need to get out of this. I need to work for myself. So, I, so, um, the the uh, the powers. Sorry for the language here, but 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 the the greatest power anybody can have is is the power to tell whoever they want to go and fuck themselves. Yeah. And that's that's what was important. That was important about doing the acting because it was for me for myself. It wasn't just the you know the creativity and all that sort of stuff, which is incredibly important. But but also to um, not to be beholden to. Whoever, you know, yeah. including, and, I, and I've had to do it a couple of times. I've had to stand up to the studios and, and stuff, um, uh, a while ago, uh, I went to my agent. My agent was in despair. Uh, what I, were you doing? Um, well, they tried to fuck me up on hunger when, I, uh, yeah. uh, the, the thing I did with Michael yeah, Fassbender, yeah, Bobby Sands, thing, well. because I'd already well, yeah. committed bizarrely. How's this for chalk and cheese? I actually did hunger in the middle of doing the mummy three. Oh my God. Um, and there was a gap in filming because I was filming in, t- in, where was it, Toronto? Mon- no, Montreal. Yeah. Uh, f- and then there was going to be a break for a month in Montreal. And then it was going to be a break on me for about two months. And then the final month, because this is because of locations, it happens all the yeah. time. 
uh, and uh, the month of November, I was going to be in Shanghai, in the Shanghai studios, which is great. So uh, with Steve, Steve McQueen, the director, uh, uh, they, they were finding it tough to tie down when they were going to shoot in Belfast. And eventually it came back in September uh, and said, we're going to be shooting next month. So I told uh, the people on set, my producer and the director, and they said, look, it sounds like a really interesting project. And they yeah. thought, as filmmakers, they thought, that's really cool. Yeah. And then the agent rang me up and, and said, uh, we have a problem. Uh, uh, which you do in hunger. And I said, why is there a problem? I'm not working then. And there's no, I can't be working. They're in the fucking Gobi Desert or somewhere. Yeah. And I'm not involved in that, wherever it was. Yeah. Uh, and they said, uh, uh, yeah, they want, ins- uh, uh, they want insurance because you're working on another, um, another project while you're doing that project. Uh, and the insurance was something like half a million. Because the, the 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 project was 160 million or something, yeah, there. Yeah. and uh, uh, and and there was no the, no the way the production was probably a third of the budget for the entire movie for Hunger. It was really cheap. Um, and she said, "Look, you're going to have to drop it. They they can't afford it. They're going to have to recut." And then I had the producer ring me up, going, "We've no plan B. Like you're it." And I just said, "Leave it with me." Uh, and let, I'm in the business long enough to realize that that my agent's uh, relationship with the studios for all of her clients is much more important than her relationship with each single client with the studios. Yeah, so yeah. I, listen, if you don't realize that, you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was aware, of, and that's business, I get it. So I had to tell her, I said, look, I'm doing hunger. Um, now, oh, oh, by the way, I had a lot of uh, collateral here because I'd already shot the month in Montreal. <laughs> okay, so, I had, so I had half of yeah. my performance done. Yeah. They couldn't go back and recast because the sets were coming down in Montreal. Yeah. So I had them by the balls. <laughs> uh, however, my agent was trying to talk me down and I just went, you know what? Uh, she said, look, they're not even replying to me emails. And I said, look, they'll reply to this. Yeah. And I, I literally told her, I, I just said, look, um, Here's what you do. Sorry for an email off. Tell them that Liam has taken this out of my hands. Uh, uh, he's doing hunger. You're not getting the insurance policy. And if you've got any problem with that, he's not going to Shanghai. Uh, and I said, fire that off. And she was, she was panicking. She was oh going, my oh, God, Liam, Jesus Christ, you can't do it, Liam. I yeah. said, look, I've taken it out of your hands. Just pass on the message. I said, if you want to give me the email address, I'll send it myself. So she uh, rang me back. About four hours later, she said, I got a reply. And she said, it's uh, three words. That'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to, uh, you, you know what? It, this wasn't about me being Billy Big Balls or anything like that. Yeah. It was about doing the right thing. Yeah. And that movie, no matter what you think of it, whatever, was really important for Northern Ireland. Yeah. And when I yeah. read it, it was about, you know, the worst act of violence in it. It's not just about Bobby Sands being a hero or anything like that. You know, yeah. Anybody that sees it knows that. Yeah, I mean, no, no, it's not. Most, no, I've seen. I saw yeah, it. The most it violent never... act that happens in it happens to a, a prison officer in front of his mother. Yeah, I won't go into it here. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 an artistic movie. Yeah. and and we brought great when it went through the roof in Cannes, and we brought a piece of art back from that was made in Northern Ireland, with you know, with with the Irish cast, Irish crew, um, and written by a fellow from Cork and the Welsh. Yeah. Uh, and we brought back a piece of art to Northern Ireland, uh, and 
that was the, one of the most satisfying things. And, and considering I only got paid five fucking grand for it, <laughs> <laughs> I was laying my career on the line for five grand, basically, in monetary terms. Yeah. But it was really important. I, I, I did it, and I, and I stood up to it, not because I'm Mr. Wonderful, because it, it, it was a story that needed to be told, and I didn't want anybody else telling it. Yeah, no, fair play because, yeah. no, you clearly do, you know, you have principles and as part of why you're here, yeah. um, speaking out and speaking up and taking the action, you know, in, in your own way and, you know, clearly having the politics as well. Um, so that brings us on then to the housing. Yeah. What, what's your take and where, where did you sort of connect into the housing crisis here? Well, because of the, because of, uh, the government looking after us when I was younger when I moved from the inner city to a yeah. really small area and went out to these houses that were built yeah uh, that that you know my mum mum and dad paid back they were paying you know plenty of rent and whatever it may be but it was people who had a had a had a start in life I mean there was five of us I think uh, when we moved out uh, and the house we were in as I say in our world was just couldn't couldn't cope um, I think we had an outside toilet and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and, and to be able to move out and that freedom, and it was only like a third built, but to go out in this expanse that felt like out in the countryside. Yeah. And not, not struggling. My dad had a job at the time. And then to, to see, to see that the total disregard for planning for younger people. Yeah. Um, and, and also, also, one of the big things for me was the having the head battered at me in history class with talk of absentee landlord and Captain Boycott yeah. and all that sort of stuff yeah. to deliberately invite them back in. Yeah. Well, having spent 800 years to get rid of them. Yeah. And to deliberately invite them back in for some sort of economic target for a spreadsheet. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I just thought it, it was, you know, the control over your, over your land, over your housing, and all that sort of thing. There's, isn't there a definition of sovereignty? Um, it, one of them is, is fiscal control, control over, over mm. your, over your money. Yeah. And during the crash of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, whatever it was, uh, even when the troika came in, the guy that left, I think, was the head of the IMF, said I wouldn't have taken the deal, and yeah. he was the guy, he was the guy, he was the guy who negotiated yeah. that air government. Uh, that he monstered our government and we took took that deal mm. and the head of the other side said I wouldn't have taken it yeah. and to disregard what Iceland did and say oh it's a different scenario when Iceland stood up to them and told them all to fuck off yeah. and there was nothing they could do with it and they even tried terrorism laws uh, the 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 Dutch and the British tried to get the uh, Icelandic government on terror and they still stood their ground yeah. and to see our crowd buckle uh, I, I just thought these people have nothing to do with me. They have no no regard for the people of the country. I, I I'm convinced of it because the evidence is there. Yeah, and and I don't know how they can look in the mirror because there's loads of them in government who um, whose whose ancestors, grandfathers, whatever, paid with their life, fought for the country, put their mm. lives on the line, and to have their descendants hand the country over to absentee landlords again. I don't know how they can look in the mirror in the morning. I've, I'm incensed over it. Uh, I, 
I feel it from you, Liam. You know, and I can see it. I can see it in in your eyes, in your in your body language, and yeah. you know, it's a pity people can't see it, but I'm sure they can hear it. Oh, you are incensed by it. It's it's disgusting. It's disgusting. My and and just to give you an example, I, you, know, I, you know the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back. It's not mm. when it affects the working class. When it goes to the middle classes, I always have this this kind of joke that me with spouting off about me blue collar credentials or whatever, and because I've done it, I've done all right in my chosen profession. I find myself a working class man with middle class children. <laughs> <laughs> I, I adore them, but like my and like I was saying to you earlier on, and and listen, I, I've I, I've experienced. The difficulty of housing, but by looking at my my kids, yeah, my it's it's working out well now, but not 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 because in a battle against the government policy and all that. My daughter and her her fella, and he's a PhD, he's a doctor, yeah. right, a doctor of, of economics. Uh, my 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 daughter's a lovely job, video game designer, loves her job, loves the company she works for. They were living with us for seven years, right. Yeah. And I know we have the highest ages is not up to twenty nine or yeah, even up to thirty five now yeah, in terms of people living with mummy and daddy. Twenty nine, yeah, and, and, and yeah. one in ten of the population is an adult living at home with their parents. It's it's just appalling mm. that that government policy um, has 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 denied uh, younger people and people approaching middle age mm. the dignity of setting up their own life, and that has been deliberate. That hasn't been circumstance. It hasn't been war. It hasn't been energy price or whatever. It was deliberate. Mm. Um, and uh, to have uh, my point being is that these are high flyers. My son-in-law and, and and my daughter are high flyers. They stayed in school. They stayed in in education, which meant they didn't have any credit rating. They didn't yeah. have because they weren't earning any money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the nightmare. The catch twenty two for university people, college people, yeah. is that nobody will trust them with a loan because they've sought to educate themselves and and set them up for a. And so, the, so the government have danced on the social contract. They've they've crapped all over it. That if you try your hard, you'll get ahead in life. Mm. And when and I've watched in my family with them trying hard and been told in in the banks and wherever it may be, uh, yeah, you haven't got there yet. Uh, and being denied their independence and the opportunity to have kids and have a family and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that, that, to, in my mind, that's traitorous behavior. It's, it's the, the people whose wages we pay to look after our future and the planning for our children. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I don't understand these people. It's like they're a, they're a different species. I mm. can't, I can't understand the disregard for the people that they represent. Uh, I just, I just, I just don't get it. Yeah, and and you were talking, you were saying when you you were listening to me on on Blind Boy, yeah, talking about treason, and I remember because I remember Blind Boy asking me that, mm. you know, last year when, it, you know, it broke over the investor funds buying the estate in Minute, mm. and you know, I came out straight away and said, you know, this is policy that I had been writing about for years, yeah, and it went back to NAMA, the National Asset Management Agency. And I would describe NAMA as as close as to an act of treason, what they did with NAMA, as yeah. you could get. Mm. And that is a very, you know, it's very, very strong language. It is a strong very word strong to use. term. It's a strong word. But I couldn't think of anything else that when you look there and you had, because it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Because I knew in 2014, I wrote like 2014, mm. you know, that was, you know, when NAMA was just starting to sell off the land and property to investor funds. I wrote an article that was published in the Irish Times that said it 
we should not be doing this. Yeah. That this is selling our future. Absolutely. And they knowingly went ahead with it. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. It's the same with the banks. We owned AIB. Yeah. Why, why, why do we have to nail people when it's owned by the people yeah. who are, who are, you know, with the tracker mortgages and all that, but you know, all that sort of stuff. When the, when, when a state owned bank is crapping on its own people, I'm just, you're, you're kind of looking at this. Does anybody, is anybody slapping these people around the head and kind of going, how do they get these jobs? Yeah. And why is there no oversight? I, I just find it astonishing. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's the same with it. And, and, you know, people shouldn't, shouldn't be any, under any illusion here because of the stocks. And you can see it now with all the tech stocks and everything else. Those investment funds, those hedge funds, those international career. And listen, you know a hell of a lot more about this than I do. All they want is a return on investment. Yeah. They don't care whether it's making Coke cans, cars, whatever it may be. Yeah. yeah. Um, these guys are coming in and, and because the markets were so volatile, uh, that they were looking for easy pickings. Yeah. Ireland's real estate is easy pickings. Yeah. This is the reason that they don't even need to put anybody in these apartments mm. because on paper, they're 100 million from these one percenters that, that they're putting in. All they want to see is a return on the, on the asset. Yeah. So they go in and buy, buy a gaff. You know, as I'm saying, I'm preaching the converted here, but you buy a gaff for 200,000 and in four years time, it's worth 400,000. Yeah. Your investment is fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need anybody in it. Yeah. Exactly. You do, it, because, because it's, it's gaining every year. Yeah. So all these people who have more money than they can ever spend in their lives are watching these Irish investments going up and up because the price of the house is going yeah. up. Yeah. And it's, and they don't have a, yeah, and and for our government to have invited these people in to deny homes, to, to deny somewhere to put your head down at night, I I I I'm astonished. I'm astonished. And people will vote. Here's the other thing: there's mammies and daddies going to be at the airport saying goodbye to their sons, their daughters who are getting on planes. They don't know if they're ever going to see them again. And the mammies and daddies who are crying voted for the people who are sending their kids abroad, and they don't even see that. Yeah. I find that I, I that I find a slight, if you can be have that cognitive dissonance is is just is beyond me because yeah. I uh, when I was going through my choice I remember my mum and dad weeping at the airport when I was going off and I went by choice yeah but to force people in because of because of government policy and and you know trying to trying to fix a spreadsheet which is all it was trying to fix a spreadsheet mm. and and to to devastate families and break up families. For that, I, I, this is why the, the, the traitor word is, is very difficult to avoid. Yeah. And I, like, I'm glad you're saying it because I've been saying it a lot. Yeah, I know you have. <laughs> it's, it's been, I suppose, an interesting reflection on what has happened to us as a country. I think there was a certain amount of kind of shock after the financial crash. And people were battered by austerity, like literally battered. And at that time, we were convinced and, and not, you know, myself and others protested and said there was a different way of doing it. We could have done it differently. But they convinced the majority that, you know, there was no alternative, that they had to accept austerity. And I think now with the housing crisis, it's almost similar to a degree that they think that there's no other way that this, you know, this had to be done this way. And now, because the whole argument has been for the last four or five years, you know, we need these investor funds. There's no alternative. And, I, and I've asked this question. So you're saying as a country, 
we can't build homes for our people anymore. They did it. We've done it. We've a proven track record of being able to do it. I lived in one for 20 years. Yeah. Or, yeah, near enough 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's bollocks. It's, it's been empirically proven that austerity did not work. Yeah. And when the crash came, everybody, everybody doffed their cap to the international world because, because the crash happened, then it's going to be hard time for us. The media were very compliant mm. in selling that story and we put up for it. Uh, we put up with it and there was no need f- primarily because of the interest rates. We could have borrowed tens of billions yeah, f- yeah. of free money because yeah. there was no interest rates on it. Yeah. We could have gone straight in. We could have, we could have had gainful full employment in the construction industry. Yeah. We could have brought people in from uh, abroad like they did uh, uh, during the boom times, except during the boom times, we were doing it for everybody else and all the internationals and the big property developers. But it could have been brought in as a, and, and, and the only way, the only way money works is if it's in circulation. If it's in the Cayman Islands, if it's in Bermuda, wherever the hell it may be, it doesn't work. Yeah. M- money fit only works when it's, when it's moving around. That's when the tax, that's when the tax money comes in is when you go into a shop, into a restaurant. Circulation creates f- fabulous taxation uh, and, and, and provides more money to pay back uh, these loans that we got yeah. of, of zero interest and the negative interest. Yeah. It was, f- it was essentially free money. Yeah. And of course, it's really important because the argument is, is shifting now to, oh, interest rates are rising, so we won't be able to do this. Yeah. But they're still putting six billion this year and next year. In the rainy day. In the rainy day fund. Yeah. yeah. And as I say, like, how disconnected you must be to think that it's that not raining. That it's not raining. You're in a monsoon. Yeah. And you're putting money away to buy a raincoat. Yeah. Like, it's just, I just see they're just so disconnected. And the fact that they're unwilling to make the steps, like setting up a state construction company, yeah. you know, like actually going, we can do this. We should do this. Yeah. You know, we should guarantee this to our people and, you know, to those who need it and those who come from abroad that, you know, we have land. <laughs> we have an abundance of of, you know, vacant, derelict properties, yeah. we could be doing this if we wanted to. Well, it's in the Constitution. It's the common good. Yeah. So it, we we have a, a legal right to walk in and just say there's, there is, uh, we, we have to do this because we're, we're losing our skilled people. We're losing our non-skilled people. Yeah. We're losing uh, 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 an entire generation. Yeah. And if that is not the common good to keep, to keep the, the Irish people here and invite economic migrants in yeah. to fulfill that yeah. uh, which we could easily do because it happened with, during the boom times in the mid 2000s with 50,000 a year Polish people were coming over because yeah. the construction industry needed it yeah. and we were delighted they were here and yeah. that was another false thing because the 50,000 Polish people needed somewhere to live so they were paying for rent and blah 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 and money was in circulation yeah. was- but of course the interesting thing that I point out um, I, I found actually in my research for the book um that's something that I, I hadn't, um, and, and very few people were aware that, obviously, except people in the banks and the real estate knew that in the last three years of the Celtic Tiger, they were building around 70 to 80,000 homes a year, 70 to 80,000. But half of those homes, half of them were been bought as a second property. And oh, so God. the, you know, because the, the, mm. people go, oh, we, ha- we had all these houses and, you know, mm. wh- what happened? And I go, that whole creation of generation rent started then yeah, when yeah. we turned homes into investment assets. Yeah. And I think we're, you know, that that is where that was at the heart of it. They, and they created a new class of landlords. Yes, they did. Who saw it as their right 
to make money from yeah. other people who can't get a home. When you have, you want to know how, you know it's really bad. I'm sure you've read the article by um, Dermot Desmond, the financial Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. That was the, this last, is, anybody last doesn't know, this man's, a, 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 if not a billionaire, a multi-billionaire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who made huge money, built the IFSC, bought uh, City Airport in London. This guy's the epitome of capitalism. Yeah. When you've got someone like that getting on, it was either the Examiner or the Times. The Irish Times, he wrote the a piece Times. for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an astonishing piece. Yeah. That it was obscene yeah. uh, to introduce the commodification of, of, of homes, the financialization of where you put your head down at night, yeah. where you kiss your children at night. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, to turn that into a commodity is, is the obscenity of that, that anybody that sits down and suggests that that is a good idea is, is, is you know, I've got the horns on the top of their head. It's appalling. It's <laughs> it absolutely is, it is utterly appalling. appalling. And, and it's, it's you know, it, it's something, again, that I've been banging on about for years, that housing should be treated as a human right. Yeah, I agree. That, that it is, you know, the idea that, as you say, we can leave something so fundamental. You know, when I'm working with, you know, people who are homeless, families, children, and it's traumatizing them, you know, and not just people who are homeless. We have tens of thousands of families literally living in the private rental sector in utter fear yeah. every day that they're going to be evicted. Children moved around to different schools. As you say, then people who can't even, you know, mm. have kids in terms of putting it off, not feeling, you know, they can even have relationships. They're stuck at home. They're in rental. They don't feel secure. That this is robbing people of of dignity, yeah, of, of a life, and of, of their childhood as well. Yeah, to rob people of their child, rob them of friends, rob them of of that beautiful cocoon of school where you grow up with these yeah. with these kids, and that and that peace of mind for the kids the parents in your apartment and, block, the kids in your road, yeah. those ones you build up, yeah, the ones you play football with on yeah. the road or whatever it may be, yeah. um, to to deny them that, mm. um, to deliberately deny this. This is not. You know what I mean? This is no cataclysm or a, or, I mean, you're going to see it now when this, when the crash is, is around the corner. You can see it. The tech, the tech industry are going down. Bitcoins on its air. So if, if, if things, things are going, uh, are going uh, to get a lot worse. Um, this, this should be, and uh, the thing about it is, is that the people who couldn't complain, the voiceless, as in the homeless, the people who are just going meal to meal or it's trying to save a couple of euros every week to get a pair of runners for their kid or whatever it may be. When it hits, and it's, it is hitting, it's hitting the middle class yeah, now, it yeah, yeah, and it's hitting, it's hitting the university educated yeah. uh, and all that, and it's working its way up. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the only way it's going to cut, because they, they've, They've painted themselves into a corner. The government have now painted themselves into a corner. They're making excuses, mm. constant excuses for the stupid decisions that they were, that these weak now. That's what I made in my, made in my says, who's a, who well, it was a property developer. Uh, and, uh, he's, he laughs at politicians. He just says they're failed businessmen. That's why they moved into business. That's why, why they moved into <laughs> politics. And another mean, <laughs> another mean thing. And I, this does not, mean anything about myself someone said that politics is, is show business for ugly people <laughs> it's an awful thing to say uh, and I'm no oil painting either uh, and and there is a, there is a sense of that um, is that the, is that the only way you're going to stop this is because the the, the people are, uh, people who are making these decisions are, are uh, I think incompetent would be uh, would be over generous to them I think yeah I think because I I think that some of them, and I've said this recently, actually don't care. 
Yeah. I actually think they don't care. They're so disconnected. Um, that, and, and I've talked about this, and you only have to look back at our history, what we've done to people through institutionalization, mm-hmm. you know, um, what we have stood over as a country, what governments have stood over, and particularly around immigration, that immigration was always accepted as a reasonable cost. Oh, and, no, oh no, it was, it, no, it, it was sold as, what was Ireland's greatest export? People. Yeah. It was sold, like emigration was sold as, as, as uh, people were our, were, were our main export. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this was, uh, this, this is the, the Gambian men and, yeah, and, the, absolutely. and the crony boys putting their thumbs I up. Our greatest export is our people. And you're going, they're your fucking sons and daughters. Yeah. Like, how, and I wonder how disconnected are you as people? That you don't weep yeah. for your own children yeah. when they leave the country. When they have to leave the country. When they have to leave the country and when they're not coming back because they can't. And I was really struck by that during the um, austerity when Michael Noonan, the former minister for finance, mm. you know, sort of discounted the emigration wave that happened then mm. because of the job losses. And we lost 70,000 construction workers. We lost a generation of young people. Many of my contemporaries and, mm. and friends and family um, left. And the... He sort of said, ah, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. And I'm just going, either number one, either, you know, whatever he, he has kids, um, either is not connected or else is, you know, they're not affected by it or yeah. just, and you're just going, how do you, and I think we shouldn't accept that. And that's part, a big part of what I've been trying to get across to people mm. over the last couple, you know, it's probably two or three years when immigration has returned. As I've said, for the first time historically, because of the lack of housing, mm-hmm. it was the lack of jobs that we shouldn't accept this. I want young people yeah. to stay in this country. Of course, you're going to make a choice to go off for of a course, year or two. Of course, of course. But it should be a choice. It should be a choice. But also, there's lots of people who want to stay and mm. should be able to stay. And we shouldn't accept it. Yeah, yeah. No, we, no absolutely not. Um, it's, um, be careful. <laughs> people don't realise that the people who go, I don't vote, you're an idiot. And the people who did vote for the people that we have, the incumbents that are in, in there, to not give them the thought because... It's what we're used to, and we need a safe pair of hands. Well, your safe pair of hands have just denied you your children. Yeah. That's yeah. how safe they are. They've sent your ch- kids to the airport. Yeah. For artists and, um, you know, people involved in the arts and music, you know, and acting in um, all the creative, I suppose, sector, housing has become a major problem. Yeah. Because they can't afford to live here, because they would often be on insecure contracts, short term. They're, they're um, all insecure. There's no, you know, unless you're doing a soap. Yeah. Uh, all of your, uh, uh, what you, uh, you you you'll not get a loan for anything, even if yeah. if you're paid. Well, they, they want to look at the last couple of years of your money coming in. And when I was, you know, I, I, like I only started making a few quid in the last maybe ten years or so. Uh, I've had the sheriff at the door. I've had nearly lost lots of stuff. Yeah, uh, and got myself in desperate trouble with the tax moment, which was my own fault. But uh, besides that, I've nearly lost me because of sticking to my guns. And uh, I never expected any help from the government, but I didn't expect hindrance. Yeah. Um, and uh, and to deny, I know there's a, there's an introduction of a, 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 uh, a, 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 a living a living wage, yeah, yeah, a living wage, basic income, basic yeah. income for but artists. It's, it's yeah. it, it ain't much, but it's not going to cover rent as no. You know, two grand a month, and the and again, I you know, I point this out in the book again that you know we say artists are is our biggest cultural export, Mm. and yet artists can't afford to live in the country now. Oh yeah, they all they're all talking about Oscar Wilde, you know, Yeats, and all sorts of stuff. We're all real proud of them, but the people we have living at the minute, no one gives a crap about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, where's where's the next WBH going to go from? Yeah. 
you know, we t- nobody can afford a garret to, you know, to, to live in. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, the, the, the total, uh, you know. Do you, in terms of just to, to finish up, because, yeah. uh, I've, we've, we've been rabbiting on now for a good while and, uh, <laughs> it's been great to feel the passion from you and to share that. And, um, you know, I've been, uh, you know, really, and, and, you know, many of people who listen to this podcast as well would have been involved in the protests, for example, Apollo yeah. House in the occupation in 2016. Mm. Um, there was big protests as well that take back the city. There was occupations in Mountjoy Square in 2017, 2018, 2019. And then there's a Raise the Roof Coalition, which organized a big protest, about 10,000 people in 2018. There's another one at the end of the month, isn't there? There's another one. 24th? 26th. 26th. 26th November, Saturday. Yeah. Um, and I'm putting the call out for people to come along to that do um, do that. you think protest is important it's incredibly incredibly important why well, well the only if you think about it the, the only reason it's very like I, I tweeted a while ago which got a remarkable uh, what do you call it response when I said look join a union now you're going to need one you can thank yeah. me later yeah. it's very simple yeah an incredible response I got from it you've only to look at people like Mick Lynch across, across the water yeah. who's uh, who's very sure of himself. Yeah. He's most definitely the epitome of a working class hero. Yeah, and he yeah. doesn't take any other shite. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 I, the interviewers panic when they're sitting down with him because <laughs> he's a straight shooter. He doesn't play the game. Yeah. The only reason there's five day weeks, the only reason there is eight hour days working, the only reason you have bank holidays is because of protests and the protest was through unions. Yeah. And that was, that didn't, that didn't come down by the generosity of our overseers. Yeah. It was people saying, we will withdraw your, our labor. You, you uh, will not make any profits. You won't be able to pay the banks back your loans. People, people are, have decided that they have no power. None of us have any power on our own. This podcast is not going to make much difference. But if you get, if you get a hundred thousand people on the street, mm. if you get enough, enough people saying we've had enough, then the the weak willed in government gonna go. I'm gonna lose my in job here. Yeah, because the people baying for my blood. Yeah, they change their mind very very quickly. Yeah, and it's the only thing that has ever moved along any blue collar or middle class or allowing people to have a life was people on the streets. It's the only thing that works. Yeah, lobbying yeah. Uh, lobbying works when you've got twenty million in your back pocket and you're fronting for a for a corporate or a bank or a or a pharmaceutical company, or a, or a, you know, a data center uh, where you've got these multinationals where they can pump money into five thousand dollar wearing suits of 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 their mates that were working in government for some other project a year before. The, lobbying works. That's why the multinationals do it, and it, it's it's got to be done by the the working men. There has to be and women, of course. Uh, it's it's got to be done. It's the only thing. Change will come, but if you don't want it, they're going to keep crapping on you. Yeah. People will crap on you until you complain. Yeah, yeah. And complaining is hitting the streets. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and I think that for me as well, it is, it has reached a point now where, you know, we have families who are, who are being made homeless right now, who have been told that there's not actually emergency accommodation. It's full. Yeah. That they have to go sleep in guard stations. And you just go, like, what is a country, at what point are we going to say enough? And I think it has come come to the point where we do, like, I've, you know, been protesting for years over this, and yeah. but I do feel that now so many people are affected. There's a real chance, I think, for 
solidarity across classes, across groups. Absolutely, everybody's suffering. To come together. Everybody is. And yep. even the richest person in Ireland has to see now that this is, housing is screwing the economy. Absolutely. It is destroying our society. And, you know, I think that there's real, as I said, real potential for a cross-society um, mobilization and protest. And I do yep. think it does. Governments do listen. They have to. They, they have they to. They have to. And I'm afraid also, of losing their jobs. Yeah. Also, what it does is as well is it puts across alternative ideas, the alternative policies that, you know, I've put across, that others in opposition are putting across, that the NGOs are putting across. Mm. They then have to be taken serious yep. because people are saying, coming together. Um, and I feel that it is a real challenge. Uh, you know, we've seen big, the, the, you know, the climate marches amongst young people, which are really positive and mm-hmm. so needed as well. Um, but I think that there's, there's a sense amongst young people. I've, you know, and talking to some of them and not just so young as approaching, you know, middle age who are affected by this, that, you know, they just feel so beaten down in many ways yeah. by it and despairing and powerless and powerless. Yep. That how do we convince them that you do have a power and that if you get on the streets, it will make a difference? Yep. Um, sometimes utter drudgery. The, the, it has to get worse for it to get better, mm. and it's it's it. The the problem is it's very difficult to see how bad it is because it's getting bad incrementally. Mm. It's not a disaster. It's not a nuclear bomb going off. And, yeah. In, in you know in, in Athlone or something like that, yeah. where an instant response is required. We good people have watched the deterioration of society with disbelief. And it, and the chickens are coming home to roost, with the with with mammies and daddies sending their their kids off, and until people stand together and and people who don't protest, uh, are not looking on the at the protesters as, uh, you know, dreadlocked lefties yeah. who are professional protesters. Yeah. That when people, I mean, we look, we did it with the water charges, yeah. did it with the VAT on children's shoes. Mm. People hit the streets, and the government crapped themselves and backed off. Mm. They will. If you want your kids to stay, if you've very, very small children now, the only way you're going to do is get them out for the get protests. Hit yeah. the streets. When they when they see their next door neighbours are out in the streets, when they see people who have means, who have lost this year's car, and they're protesting on the streets, that's when they'll do what they're told. The problem is we're not telling them what we want <laughs> them to do. Dead right. Dead right. Listen, Liam. Thank you so much for giving me a huge amount of time. I really appreciate <laughs> no it. No bother. No bother. Go home now and make the dinner. <laughs> <laughs> good man, me whole year. <laughs> I do. I cook. <laughs> me uncle is a chef. Yeah. Very good. Very good. What yeah. do you make? Uh, I did shepherd's pie yesterday. Uh, well, of course, I'm a big You went down the butcher and bought it, didn't I did you? It. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I got, got them myself. I brought me... Me mints, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, my shopping is when I'm not working. It's, it's what keeps me off the crack pipe. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's cooking. There's no evidence of crack pipe here, no, anyway. No, there is definitely not. No, no, no. <laughs> listen, listen. Thank you so much, and best of luck with it all. Cheers. And, thanks uh, very much for. We'll see you on the on um, November 26th. Yeah, yeah, definitely will. Great. Listen, thank you so much. Listen, that was great. Uh, so, so, um, I think important and lovely to have Liam in here. Um, and. As always, listeners, we are an independent podcast produced by Tortoise Shack Media. We rely on our listeners to 
fund the cost of production. Um, we need it. Um, it costs to host all this. So if you can, please chip in. Uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, patreon.com forward slash, to- forward slash tortoise shack. Um, and reminder, yes, November 26th, Dublin. Uh, please be there. Bring all your friends, bring your family. And I'll be down in Limerick, um, in the UL on November 24th, two days before it, talking, um, about the housing crisis with CATU, the tenants union and the postgrad students union and also raise the roof. That's six o'clock in UL and 7.30 in Wickham Place um, and talking about my book gaffes as well. So listen, thanks so much. We'll talk to you all soon.